Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to The Imperfect Allies. I'm Chris. I'm Richie. And today we have a special guest, two special guests with us. All right. We're going to let them introduce themselves, but I just want to say personally for me, I am so thankful to have these guests here because they have personally, the things that they have built have changed my life in an amazing way. And I'm just glad that they're here to have this imperfect conversation with us today as we talk to the founders of Axiom Learning Center. Hello, how are y'all? Good, how are you? Tell us about yourselves. How'd y'all, how'd y'all get to this weird yeah. moment? What is y'all's life story? Yeah. Right out of the box. Um, how do we get to this moment? So my name is Shazad, uh, and as you said, I am, I am the co-founder with uh, Aisha uh, of Axiom Learning, um, which is you know, and our intent behind Axiom Learning, not to, not to be advertising here, but essentially the idea is that- Oh, please, you know, plug away. We're, we're going we're gonna to play all day, all day, man, all day. Um, and so, you know, the intent is that we, as parents, we have, we, have three, we have three boys of our own. You know, as parents, we have experienced a very imperfect education system. Uh, and uh, we can talk about that a few more if you want. Uh, and so the idea behind Axiom Learning was to deal with what we see as inefficiencies and imperfections, to use your term, uh, in the education system. Um, but from the point of view of you can criticize, but you can only criticize if you can offer solutions, right? So lots of people can mm-hmm. criticize. That's easy. The hard part is saying, here's what you do about it. That's that's kind of the, the ethos behind Axiom Learning. Go ahead, follow that, Aisha. No, <laughs> I wasn't even going in that direction. I was like, I'm a Filipino American. I was born in the Philippines <laughs> when I was five. And uh, you know, I'm a physician, public health practitioner, an educator, and you know, someone who has devoted her life to to advocacy and supporting those otherwise would not have access or voice. And that's a very good answer. Yeah. <laughs> totally that different answer that question. Yeah. No, that's a good answer. That's a, a better answer probably. Um like I can do that too if you want. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I'm good. I feel like I feel yeah. like my no, no, follow that up. Follow that up. <laughs> <laughs> what you got? What, what I got? Well, you know, I, 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 first of all, she's being very humble. She does a lot more than what she just said. Um, she is exceptional in every way. Uh, and and uh, understating, I think, significantly what she has done and will do. Uh, um, I, I guess the way I would look at my career, which is to answer your second question, Chris, uh, of how I got to where I got, is that I, I would like to think that I have directed my time and my effort, my energy, my talents, or whatever they may be, toward addressing um, inefficiencies in the, in the world and society around us that have resulted in equities, um, you know, kind of unfairness, if you will, in, in terms of how society has defined itself, right? So, and I've done that on the economic front, doing it now in education. Wow. Uh, you know, I've done a little bit of civil rights work in the past, you know, and so I am a lawyer by training, although I haven't practiced actively in you know, 20 years, I'd say, right, give or take. Um, you know, it's not that I wasn't good at it, it's just I really didn't like it. You know, but the idea is the, the next thing is always going to be, you know, the question is always going to be how many people can we help and how meaningful is that impact, right? Uh, and so, you know, it, with each, and I think at each point in our life, when we've chosen what the next step is going to be, those are the two big lenses through which we've, we've made those choices. Wow, thank you for that. I, I find it amazing that y'all have put y'all's work in different areas even. Um, you just kind of found your passion, your gift, and you've applied it to multiple industries because that's what you can do when you see a, a place that can change and grow. And so uh, a lot of us are spending our time thinking it has to be in this one area, but your gifts work in multiple avenues. So 
that's y'all are a great model for that. So thank you. Uh, amazingly, amazing answer. Both of you. I mean, golly, how did we follow that up, Rich? I don't, what are we going to yeah, go do? Um, I like to tell, I like to tell jokes in front of a microphone. So that's my big, uh, qualification. There it is. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm a dad too. Yeah, no, I'm a dad. I've, I've got four kids. Um, and, uh, I work in IT and stuff like that too. Um, I just left a, a uh, y'all have it up there in Seattle, uh, Girls Rock. Uh, I don't know if y'all are familiar with that charity at all, but it's a uh, it's a uh, empowerment through music education for for um, girls. And um, ju I just left that, so I, I have very little nonprofit experience um, outside of like Christian ministry, which I won't I won't qualify as nonprofit. We're, um just because you, you mentioned religion, right? So the the so Aisha and I are both Muslim, right? And one of the reasons there's there's there has there's always been a sense of urgency around our desire to kind of be helpful and do things. And one mm -hmm. of the reasons, so in our religious tradition, there is a there is a reminder of constant. There's two there's two constant reminders. The first of which is you need to recognize that there is scarcity on two things. The first is your health, and the mm -hmm. second is your Right. So if, if, you know, so you, when we have health, we tend to take it for granted. Right. But, but as you know, if you spend time with anybody that's a little bit older, you know that you really shouldn't be taking it for granted. Right. Um, and then the second thing is free time. Right. So like, you know, Rich, you mentioned that you have four kids, right. And you know, you have a comedian and you've got a day gig as, as an IT person, right. Like you don't have free time. Right. And somewhere in there you would, you decide to do a podcast, but you don't have free time. Chris doesn't have free time. Right. But when we were 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, we had lots of free time and nobody told us, right? Nobody mm -hmm. says to you, actually, if you are going to set yourself on a trajectory to do big things and have big impact in this world, you actually need to start early because you get married, you have kids, you have a mortgage, and all of a sudden that opportunity goes away, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing that, that has defined, at least I think for us at mm -hmm. least, has defined uh, how we've chosen to do what we do is that there, there's a, there, the Prophet Muhammad uh, uh, taught that when the Muslim touches something, she or he is supposed to leave behind the mark of excellence, right? Mm. Right. And so what that means, and there, so that's that's a very that's a much more profound way of of, of saying what, what what I often say is, which is, look, if you're gonna do it, you may as well do it right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there's a lot. You guys, you guys kind of said, you know, Rich, you kind of said almost in passing something that I think is actually really profound, which is that you have set for yourself a certain standard of excellence for this conversation, mm. right? I think this is before we started this podcast, and that's why. You do all this research before you get on these calls and you, you do, you know, you don't have to do that, right? You're choosing to do that because you've set yourself, set for yourself a certain standard, right? Now, what I would suggest is, and what we are motivated, made it by, by virtue of ideology, is that, that that should be everything that we do, right? So for every label that you carry around for yourself, all of your concentric circles of identity that you, should, that you, that you own, not ones that are given to you, but the ones that you take for yourself. Those are things that you should say, I'm going to leave behind the mark of excellence, right? So I chose to be a father, right? There, you know, lots of people are fathers, right? Mm -hmm. um, but because I'm a father, I, 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 mean, I, don't, I mean, you have to have my kids if I'm a good father. If you ask Aisha, I think she'd say I'm a good father, mm -hmm. right? But like, you know, <laughs> but it's really right? It's something, something I, I focus on, right? And so I have a professional career. Um, so all these labels that I've chosen for myself that I care about are things that I, I then, you know, kind of set what I'd like to think is relatively high standard, right? Yeah. Wow. And I, I like that. I like also that you separated the ones that you chose for yourself and the ones that maybe others 
cast upon you. So I'm curious, um, and and it could be based on your faith of how have you navigated the ones that are cast upon you, and could you share some of the labels cast upon you, and how you decided to maybe ignore them, accept them, build on them? Can you walk me through that? Are you asking me or are you asking Usher? Because I've been talking too much. So use the thing. Oh, uh, see, you, you're a married man. You understand how to pivot. I understand. <laughs> you got to give me some space, man. That's not true. Um, I mean, so labels of society give me, right? There's some mm-hmm. labels such as I'm a woman and uh, and I'm a mother. And, but even as well as like, it was a really big deal, actually, that I'm a physician and I spent all those years training to be a physician and I I am now in education. That was a was a pretty big label I had to like adjust uh, in the minds of certainly my parents' eyes. Um, uh, oh. <laughs> Do you know how much money you're making as a doctor? Thomas, <laughs> <laughs> it's a soreness. See, that's a great. That's a great. Uh, that's that's the kind of thing we talk about in this show because that is a stereotype, right? That is an Asian stereotype of parents who, regardless of where you are in the continent. They're like, you gotta get 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 that doctor. I mean, doctor and lawyer sitting in front of me. I'm I'm fine as a parent. You know what I'm saying? I, I think that um, I guess you just imposed another stereotype on me uh, because certainly my parents did not uh, did not impose uh, or even suggest the idea of me becoming a doctor. That was definitely completely my. Wow. Fact, yeah. When they came to, to this country, I remember. I remember because I remember being like, you know. In school, going, can you just give me a little guidance? Like, what do you think I should be doing with my life? And I remember my dad saying, you know, we came to this country so that you could have, you know, you could choose a life based on what you want, not because of what you have to do. Right? Wow. And, and so I definitely didn't have any type of pressures from my parents as to what occupation to, to consider. This was definitely all me. Wow, that's awesome. That is awesome. Absolutely, absolutely. Versus in my like, case, and I only bring it up because we all. I only bring that up because we all laughed at it, right? We all laughed at like, oh, you know, my parents are so happy, that kind of thing. Like that's that's kind of things that we talk about. Well, and it could show. be, yeah. it could be the stereotype of education is all um, people not making a lot of money. I, as a stand-up comedian, I have told yeah. that joke. It kills. It's like that job where it's like. It's like publicly uh, noted in terms of what your salary is, and so yes. just mm-hmm. exactly. But Shazad, mm-hmm. you were going to say for something. sure. Well, I was going to say I had the exact opposite, which is that my mom and dad were all dead set on me being. I am the stereotype that Rich thought he was talking to. Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. And my mom and dad were like, mm-hmm. "You're going to be a doctor from the day I could talk," you know. And mm-hmm. uh, I used to. Jo- I went to Harvard Law School, right? And I used to joke that I am the only person in Harvard Law School whose parents are disappointed. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> they were. They're like, oh. You're just a lawyer. You couldn't have gone to med school. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> That's awesome. I, it's just funny how um, even a, a simple thing that came from your parents, that perspective shift of Harvard is, I mean, who questions Harvard? But yeah. your parents are like, ah, come on yeah. now. Yeah. We wanted the around. honest one. Yeah. They came around. They came around. But it was, it was definitely... You know, up until the day I was leaving, come on, just call the med school, see if they'll let you in, kind of thing, right? And I, you know, what they didn't know is that I'd actually gotten in. I just didn't tell them. Oh, they don't know. They don't know. Okay. (laughs) This will be released publicly. They don't know. They didn't know. 
good, good. So as far as your your both of you navigating stereotypes, perceptions from your parents, perceptions that you personally had, how did you ignore some of the labels that were cast upon you? Essentially, staying steadfast in what you were going after, and did faith help that? I know Shazad, that was two questions in one, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, faith for sure. Ultimately, uh, ultimately, our uh, values that are guided by our faith really determine in terms of the choices that we make in every place. And so, it is a uh, in Islam, they talk about like a race to do good works, and so mm-hmm. it is one of those things. The things like even when we decided to, to shift to education, it was at that time deciding, okay, this is that part of our life where you know we can shift and do whatever we want. And we really took the time to really look, uh, you know, across the, the full landscape of, of what choices that existed in terms of doing things in healthcare or infrastructure or something else. And education was what made sense that made the biggest impact, that could make the biggest impact. Uh, and yeah. that's why we chose it. And it, it, it stays, it has, um, we're able to maintain that integrity of why we did all of the other things that we did in terms of uh, the careers and the, and the knowledge that we pursued. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> Phenomenal. I, 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 you know, not to be confused, but, but, you know, just to add to that, there is, I mean, you, you kind of hinted at something, Chris, which is that there is, when you are the child of immigrants, right? So I was born in the States, um, but my, my parents had recently immigrated, right? And in my, in my case, from Pakistan. And um, there, is, there is an inevitable tension there, right? Which is that, mm-hmm. um, you know, they have had to rip themselves from everything they knew, right? So, you know, like yeah. a way of life, all of their friends, all of their relatives. You know, my father, when he first came here to the States, you know, he told me like he, the only person he knew was his brother knew this guy who was a doctor in a hospital or something. Yeah, nowhere to go, shows up mm. with his cases. And so he spent his first night in America in a hospital bed because he just, that's the only place he had to sleep, right? The next day he had to get wow. up. He had, he had $300 in his pocket and he had to go find an apartment and get all set up. You know, those are, those are stories that we take for granted about the immigrant, the immigrant experience, right? But part of what they bring with us, with them, is a desire to honor their, their own sense of what their identity is. Right, hmm. and that has a lot of cultural underpinnings to it. Right, there's a certain cultural way to be, a certain way to think, a certain way to interact with people, how you talk, what you eat, what you wear, right? Uh, and those tensions are very, very real. Um, and when you're growing up in a society where you know, often I was the only, only person who wasn't Caucasian uh, mm-hmm. in my school environment, um, or one of very few, often, right? Then you know, you're you're dealing with a culture for whom I am very foreign, right? I didn't mm-hmm. feel foreign, but I I clearly must have looked foreign, right? People told you you were foreign, more or less than... Did. Yeah, they used yeah. to, you know, like, this is, this is how crazy it was. In junior high, like, you know, I'm Pakistani, right? Like, you know, they used to call me uh, Mazda, because that was the only Asian word they knew. And then, you know, they're like, oh, what, Honda? That's a good nickname for you, right? And eventually they got to Gandhi, which is, like, closer, but still. You know what I mean? They, 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 they're just, like, so uncreative. Yeah. And so, touch in terms of the the, the kind of the, the labels they were trying to give me they just couldn't they couldn't they couldn't figure out who i was it's just like other wow. right so, yeah. so the way in which you get the comfort i think i felt like i had to say if i'm going to be the same person in every room right what would that look like in other mm. words when i when i am with my parents i am acting mm. just like with you know say my wife or my kids or friends regardless of their identity or their gender or their race or whatever 
right? Um, what would that look like, right? And so that that often, for me, that really comes from you have to know what you believe, right? Yeah. Because what you believe, as I just said, I think really well, it's it you, what you believe dictates what you do, right? It's the, and and also the story you tell yourself about who you are dictates the choices that you make, right? In America, that's the yeah. thing. And so, and, and that took me, I don't know, probably took me a good 15 or 20 years to kind of say, how can I be the okay. same person in every room, right? It's not an inconsequential thing. And part of it is is knowing what my values are uh, and being comfortable sharing those yeah. values regardless of who I'm talking to. So and we've talked to other, oh, go ahead, Chris. No, no, I was about to say that we've talked well, about a lot of yeah, so other other immigrant folks that have talked about uh, whether it be um, their nationality or ethnicity or even their like um, gender identity and things like that, there's this balance of always um, authenticity versus safety, right? So how authentic can I be? How safe is it for me to be my authentic self in these spaces? Are y'all finding that the same? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Having that integrity of of self throughout all of it. So, so, so yes, in terms of the tension that you have to resolve, right? Um, mm. But that tension, Rich, ultimately stems from is your locus of control internal or is it external, right? So mm-hmm. what I mean right. by that, are you, do, you, are, do you allow yourself, do you allow your day-to-day existence to be defined by whether or not other people like you or whether or not they respect you, mm-hmm. right? Or is right. It by whether or not have I lived by a code that I can feel comfortable with, irrespective of whether society validates that or not, right? And so to, to go from an external locus of control to an internal locus of control is, you know, that's not easy and not everybody can get there necessarily, right? Right. But that that journey is an important journey to take if you want to, if you want to live in a world where you want to make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. You have to, because you're always, there's, there's always going to be pressure. There's always going to be resistance, right? Anytime you try to do something meaningful or good, there's always going to be resistance. Um, and you can Definitely. only withstand that if you are driven by an internal locus of control. And that that cut next to an interesting journey that I've been on on this podcast. So when we started this, um, I was a black guy who talks about race and um, culturally experienced in those worlds. And Richie was a white guy trying to learn more. And midway through, I discovered this whole idea called individualism which really is shifting the locus of control from external to internal, or at least that's one way to um, define it. And that was new for me. That was actually something I had never heard of or thought about. And I've been on that journey for the last six, seven months. But I, I don't know if you got that from your religion or how did that permeate your like how did you learn that how did you become aware of that knowledge because for me it wasn't until i was arguing with someone who the world told me was racist that uh, i kept trying to listen to what he was saying but it, it did not make sense until i just gave in and said okay he's right about everything let me learn let me study what he's trying to say and all he was saying was you have to control all your choices you have to be the one to decide what you do with your life which for my my wrong racist experience was him saying I should be the one to be blamed if a police stops me and accosts me. Right. And, and so the misinformation had been coded into it being racist. And I, it was just very hard for me to even understand it any other way. So I'm curious how you learned the locus of control, 
how did you um, experience that? I mean, I, I guess first there's the idea with regards to just developmentally, right? First, developmentally, we, uh, we first need to identify what groups we belong to uh, before we can actually identify how we are different. And so, so there's that part, right? So there is the, that need to, to see, okay, where do I belong? And, and, and because you need that sense of belonging. And then when you have that belonging, then it is when that individuation happens, right? And, you, and it's developmentally, you know, it's, it's definitely like that ninth, 10th grade in, uh, years in high school. Yeah. Right? And to be really painful because it's like this realization that like, okay, I might be a part of these groups, but I don't like them at all. Right. And it's like, that's when you're, that's when you start to really grapple with it and recognize, okay, well then who am I really? And uh, it is then actually, I would say that a lot of people, like they might turn away from religion or they might turn away from their groups, right. As they start to yeah. have to like, do that deep dive and, and figure it out. And uh, sometimes people learn through this experimentation in terms of like, I'm, I'm not this or, and I, and, and, and maybe I'm like this or whatever else. Um, but it takes time, and I think it's it is in terms of uh, that journey of understanding what I believe and what my faith is. It's it's one where uh, I went through like a really like expansive search in terms of mm. that, that you know like what are those beliefs and and what what is truth and uh, in it and in terms of, of you know in terms of Islam it it has it carries those answers for me right and it wow. has. It's um, it is kind of a dynamic, like the like we talk about like the Quran being kind of this like this living text, because at each time you approach it, it actually kind of brings out more, and especially in terms of what you're ready for. It allows for that locus of control that we're saying, right? because it is all yeah. from with, um, but it is it it does it with an awareness of of the world around you. Right? It's not meant to just be only just in your head. Right? It is about being present in the world and how wow. you, you kind of bring yourself to the world. Definitely. Um, I, I'm curious about your, y'all's perception on maybe American individualism, just as a side note, just since we are going down this path, do you, do you see the um, presence and awareness of externally others, or do you see maybe a hyper-focus of self in the American culture of individualism? Uh, I mean, you're presenting them as exclusive, and I don't know that they are. I think they can both be present and reside next to each other, can't they? Yeah. There's recent research, actually, in terms of uh, that uh, that the American culture has actually already shifted over these past few decades, and it's, it's becoming more and more kind of individualized compared to even in, we were like going back to like 60s, 70s, and certainly the big shift was probably around like industrial revolution, right? Mm-hmm just like what priorities were in terms of, of community. Um, but uh, even now, there's been some research, recent research done in terms of the populations now, especially, you know, people under like 22, like that, um, where that sense of, of being an individual and therefore also the, the rates of loneliness are actually like greater because of that. So I see a perfect opportunity to segue here just because Oh, that's actually very a horrible one because I'm a comedian, though. There's a lot of lonely people out there, but you two seem to have found love and a working partnership. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and this episode actually is going to be releasing uh, for the time of Valentine's Day. So I'm, I, I just want to hear like, because 
right now I'm mind blown by the the teamwork that y'all have in your relationship. The fact that y'all are so well yoked and doing such good things in the world. We all are looking for that. And um I just I, I would love to hear y'all's love story a little bit as I uh pry back into uh, my boss's life. I, I didn't ever say I work for this company, but these are the amazing bosses I have for those listening. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I can look. I mean, I, I, um, I don't know that we know you that well, uh, <laughs> right? So <laughs> fair. this will be publicly released. Yeah. Though. <laughs> I, I, I would say. So, so here's what I would say. I would say, when, when I, when I should I first started talking, right? Beyond just kind of being friends, uh, I was in Tokyo. So I was working as a lawyer in Tokyo and Aisha was in Richmond, Virginia in her last year of medical school. Wow. Right. Um, and we started talking on a Monday, my time, Sunday, your time. Right? <laughs> uh, and, um, but you know, when we started the conversation, Aisha was like, look, I don't want to have this conversation unless there are certain things I know. Right. And so she said, these are my deal breakers. And she's kind of laid them out one at a time. Right. So she had these questions. And if I answered the questions wrong, I was essentially off the table and, you know, this is a podcast so people can't see, but I show smoking hot. And uh, so I really wanted the answers to be right. Um, there you go. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, like, like literally when I see her, she glows, right? Like, I don't think other people can see the glow, but in, in my eyes, she like, there's like a little halo like glow about Aisha um, all the time. We've been married for 20 something years. Wow. Uh, and the glow has gone away. In fact, I think it's gotten brighter. Um, but uh, oh. the, um, <laughs> the, um there's a lot of wisdom in what she did, right? Because she was sort of saying, like, why, why would we waste our time, right? Like, why would we, you know, get emotionally entangled uh, if it's not ultimately going to work out? And the things that are going to make something not work out, I already know. So let me just share them with you and make sure they're working off the same page. And so, so she kind of did that probably a couple of hours of, I just need to know, I just need to know, I just need to know, right? Mm-hmm. And then I was kind of like, well, hold on a bit, right? Like, there's two people here and I have, I have my own deal breakers. And so I kind of, yeah. I kind of put on the table right and i said look these are the things that i care about and i just need to know right like you know i, I need to know if we're working off the same page yeah uh, and we were right and so honestly like on like you know on monday i knew like i was like i'm i'm all set i'm ready to go but That's i didn't amazing. want to for it so i waited until thursday to propose right so uh and and she's i, I won't embarrass her but what she actually said but she said yes right is the essence of it, okay right? <laughs> You know, so we were obviously talking a lot between that Monday and that Thursday, you know, but at this point, you know, nobody, like our parents didn't know, our friends didn't know, nobody else knew, right? So we just, you know, we're calling people saying, hey, we have news, and people are like, oh, did you get another job? Are you are you moving somewhere? Like, you know, did you win a prize? And it's like, no, it's a little bit more consequential than that. Yeah. Right? So, a little bit. Um, yeah. So this is, this is 20 years ago. Who's paying that phone bill from Tokyo to North Carolina? So that Who's paying that phone bill? First of all, Virginia. <laughs> uh, Virginia, okay. So, uh, <laughs> I had a very large phone bill. So it's funny, because for a while we were splitting. <laughs> right? Um, and then uh, Aisha actually had to take out a student loan to pay her phone bill. Yeah, I totally like. That's love, y'all. That's love. And then at some point I said to her, do you know how much money I make as a lawyer? And she's like, well, then you should be calling me. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's a student versus a lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's really sweet. That's really sweet. So it sounds like it sounds like clear expectations and clear communication are cornerstone to y'all's relationship. Is that right? 
Yeah, I mean, look, if you know the expectations and you're reasonable, mm-hmm. all stuff sorts itself out. Great. I, I, I love that. I mean, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, These are I the things that. I want. These are the things I can't, I don't want. I mean, I love that so much. Um, <laughs> he says I, love, I mean, I do. I think it's, no, I'm saying I, I love that. I think it's great to, to be able to speak so clearly uh, about what you want and don't want or what you need and don't need uh, because it feels like, you know, things, communication is so difficult, right? You know, um, especially romantic communication. I don't know. I mean, y'all's experience may be different, but for me, it's, um, that's, that's been number one, right? Number one is we've got to have open lines because we've been married um it'll be 18 years in a couple of days wow. and wow um uh no it was a, it was 18 it was 18 years 10 days ago oh boy i'm telling you guys this is rock and nicotine is really and i have four kids so four kids so i mean you know i'm doing okay i'm doing pretty good <laughs> anyway i just wanted to say that sounds awesome but i'm really that, that just uh, that sounded great. I just wanted to say that was cool. That's it. I'm going to talk for two minutes. I, I would just, oh, if, boy. I, if I may, Rich, uh, after you buy a bouquet of flowers for your wife, to apologize yeah, yes. for your anniversary 10 days ago. Um, no, no, no. I just forgot about it. We, we went out. And just, um, anyway. <laughs> but you said something kind of profound there, which is that uh, that communication piece actually is, is critical, right? So at some point, I don't know, this is maybe 15 years ago or so, you know, we were kind of like, so, you know, that we, you know, you, as I'm sure as we do, have a lot of friends whose relationships haven't worked out, right? And we have a lot of friends whose relationships have worked out. And uh, at some point we're like, oh, we should, we should look into this. Like, why is it that some relations work and other relations don't? And so we, we, we embarked on this kind of research project where we kind of did all, we reached out and try to interview a bunch of people and say, so what's, what's the core of your relationship? And we were thinking we'd eventually write a book with, eight or 10 principles or whatever it was. And there's no book there because there's only one thing that everybody kept saying, which is we communicate really well, right? Even when it's hard, make sure that we talk to each other uh, and we're good at that. And that's why our relationship works. You know, I say our first year, we definitely had to work through that. Oh yeah, there was a point in our first year where I was like, you're supposed to just know what's on my mind. I know, understand. If we really uh, yeah. you just know what I'm thinking. Okay, first of all, that was not just the first year. <laughs> <laughs> that is still true. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Yeah, I have um, in my desk at work when I go back. I have um, cognitive distortion posters all along my wall, right? So one of mine is, you know, that's right there, mind reading. I'm reading their mind. They can't read mine. Like, you know what I mean? Just have it in front of me every day because I do the same thing. I do the exact same thing, uh, whether it be romantic partners or business partners or whatever. They need you to know. read your mind. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that just doesn't – and we know, Chris, you and I know that the things – I mean, just coming from our two perspectives, how differently you can see the same thing. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? You know? Um, so and I'm, I, I love that. I'm in, uh, oh my goodness. I'm in, oh, I can't do math right now. I'm going to estimate eight months of marriage. <laughs> I just, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes. We got, we got some pretty mm-hmm. good communication down. And, um, yeah. you know, I have, picked up that it's not always mind reading but when the eyebrow like does that i know what it means 
<laughs> when the eyebrow twitches, it's like, oh, 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 okay, let me get the dishes. I got it. So I'm picking it up. <laughs> but really, I mean, that's true, man. Like, that, I love that. And especially um, really real honesty, like you talked about, like, you know, saying uncomfortable things or uncomfortable truths. It's so true. And that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do, right? So in this podcast, talk about those things that are uncomfortable and, and, and honest. And, you know, you, you, know, you and I, uh, uh, Shazad, before the show, we were talking about how, um, you know, you're not really buying a black and white universal. Like, there's no black or white culture. It's, it's all these little tiny cultures, you know, all across the country, especially, let's say American. American culture includes all those. Maybe would you agree there? I, I guess, I, so just to clarify what I was saying, I'm not saying that there's no... Mm-hmm. Black culture or white culture, I'm saying there's no monolithic black culture or monolithic white culture. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because right. because one thing is true, you know, um, one thing is true of some areas, not going to be true, like you said, in, in, in another. Um, and it's and it's definitely um, affected by not just not just race, which which is strange because you know race race is made up. I mean, it's gender is made up. These things are just. A, a quote unquote scientist 400 years ago goes, those are Africanists, whatever. Those are Americanists. What, you know, you know, I, I should have done better research and I, I can get it for you, <laughs> but you know, but, but, but essentially that's what, that's what happened. Right. And then, and then, you know, we have these sort of self-organized groups that make all these little things. And, and, uh, you know, I tend to agree with that at the same time. How do we speak about these things? Um, can we speak in a broad brush at all? Is there any way to talk about? There's, if there's not a monolithic culture, are there, are there, I don't know, similarities that go from the south to the north? I mean, things like that. Because we're, yeah. So you you just said two things that are diametrically opposed, right? Mm. So on the one hand, okay. I think you're you're saying rightly that race is a construct that somebody created or you know some group created mm-hmm. and with it, mm-hmm. right? And then on the other hand, you're saying. But maybe that construct isn't so bad. Right? Like maybe that's like you know maybe that No, I'm sorry. I, I'm, if I said that, I misspoke. I, I, I mean to say that um, that's what we have. So whether race is real or not, there are people that suffer the consequences of that. Myself and Chris, you, all, all of us here included, to varying levels, right? Um, and so it's it's not that it's not that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I would have a hard time saying to Chris, black culture is not real or monolithic black culture is not real because that feels very, I don't know, disrespectful. Hmm. But I, I, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. So there's a difference really difficult. between being racist and being race aware, right? So, mm-hmm. I, so mm-hmm. I, think, I think, you know, you know so, so one of the classes that I took in law school was this class taught by this guy, Randall Kennedy. Uh, of race relations in the law. And I remember we had this almost semester-long debate around what is the ideal society? Is, is the ideal society a truly colorblind society or not, mm. right? Uh, um, you would think that the answer would be, sure, I want a society where, where race has no Doesn't influence exist. on things that are playing out. But it was interesting to me, there's always there's a lot of interesting conversations there, but one of which was the folks in the room that were most vociferous about not wanting a colorblind society were actually people of color, right? Mm. They were saying, I don't want you to write away my experience, right? Like that there, there is, common, there are commonalities I would like, I would, I would guess, Chris, right, to the black experience, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because race is a construct that so many people 
uh, allowed to define how they am. And so how they how people interact with Chris because he's black, right? Uh, yeah. Or Rich, how people interact with you because you're white. Yeah, sure. Real thing, right? So it's not, but, but how you re, how Rich responds to it may not be how another person who shares your race responds to it. I got you. This response may not be the same, right? So is, is race a real thing? Yes, it is. It, you know, clearly, right? Especially in the American context. Um, but yeah. to say that we all have the same or even a common response to that reality, I think lends itself to potential oversimplification. And I think that's a lot of it. It's, it's a oversimplification. And if you go back in time, when you have less data points, you're just throwing that oversimplification on a lot of people to better assess them or trade them or do malicious things to them um, and things like that. And we are still doing that today with better information, better technology, globalization and it's it's crazy to be in my position where i am 100 percent a studier of racist ideas because i know i know that we are all different races today talking right now and it's hard to remove that indoctrination even though i'm 100 percent aware that individualism is seeing each one of us how we all respond we all have different behaviors regardless of how we're treated and some of us make different choices based on how we're treated and I've heard, I've been told how many black people respond and I've agreed that I've seen that data show up in my experiences in my life but does that mean that all no it's it's impossible to say that and so I guess one thing that we talk about on the show a lot is what is something that the two of you see as a way for others to help the initiatives that you're a part of how can others be allies to what you're working towards um, and how can others learn about things that maybe we're not aware of that y'all see in this world? You're fond of asking. I had two questions. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry. How, how can people help us? So, yeah. So, so how can, how can someone be an ally to you? What's what, first steps? Yeah. How could someone be an ally to you? I guess it's that defining first which part of me we're talking about. Oh, wow. Like, if we're talking about the me that works uh, in education, right? I think that how someone can be an ally is to really understand that, that we are all complex learners, right? And that the, I think that eventually all of the barriers will be um, broken down with regards to just how we, we create all these labels uh, about mm. people in terms of, of how they learn, right? In terms of the Whole alphabet soup of ADHD, you know, and, and what, 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 yeah. See, I mean, if I was going to say, if Chris, if Chris, all the stuff Chris has been talking to me about your school, your what y'all do, I would have flourished in that. That sounds, I mean, that would I needed it so bad. So I'm really glad it's there. Sorry to interrupt you. That's again ADHD, but thank you. I just want to say thank you. It's just great. I think it's great what y'all are doing. So. Right, but it is you know to be able to see each person as like as true and like full as self, right? And 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 recognize that every person is doing the best they can. You know, our responsibility is to provide that space for them in order to help each person thrive. That that's in terms of it, that education label that would be how someone would that life. Yeah, I don't I don't know how to answer that for me except to say like just to describe a dynamic, right? So it's interesting, right? Because um, for us as Brown folks working in the American education space, I'm trying to figure out how to say this 
um, a lot of people don't know how to place us, right? Is, mm -hmm. is the way I would describe it. So, you know, the, the, the education reform movement is dominated by very well-intentioned people who are predominantly white and black, right? And there are mm -hmm. some Asians now, but not very many. And there are fewer brown Asians. There are some, but not, not very many, right? And I, I find it's kind of like when I'm on a basketball court. I'm actually very good at basketball. I'm oh, very, you're very good. so good. Um, but if I am on a basketball court, if I want to pick up for it, and I, for some reason, miss my first shot, I'm not going to see a ball the rest of that game, right? Mm -hmm. Because people are going to assume, well, he can't play, right? And so the only way I'm going to get my shot is if I get my own rebound, essentially, and go back and play. And in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the context of our firm, Axie Learning, we have tools that solve problems as rich as you, you know, you're, you know, you're very enthusiastic about that, that would solve the, or at least, I don't know if solve is the right word, but significantly help, meaningfully help, uh, at least 25% of all kids. And I, I think just based on our own data would help every kid out there, right? In terms of helping them in a more effective, stress-free, joyous way, right? But there is, we have gotten this very strong sense that uh, people have a hard time figuring out how to interact with us. Uh, and because they don't mm -hmm. know how to interact with us, they don't know how to interact with what we bring to the table, right? The wow. tools that we bring to the table, the, the, the ways in which we can help. And I, I, I mean, I actually think that in many ways, what we have done has been diminished because they're looking at the messenger and saying, I don't know, what, I don't know how to fit you in to this bigger conversation, right? And they, they, it is very, um, and it's been very, been very frustrating. And part of the frustration wow. is, you know, to run the organization that we run requires constant fundraising, really, right? And it's really hard for us to raise money. And when we look out at the landscape and we see companies that do a tiny fraction a tiny, tiny fraction of what we do, and they raise uh, just gobs of money, right? And I just sit there and I say, I don't, I, I don't understand what's happening. And you know, part of that is probably maybe we're not good at that conversation about how to raise money. But I, I have to think, you know, I don't feel like I'm a dumb guy. I don't feel like I'm bad at presenting things. Um, but I think there is there is a barrier there, right? And so, so when you think about allyship, I want nothing more than to be given a fair shake. That's all I want, mm -hmm. right? You know, because as someone who is not in the majority, who has grown up as not being in the majority, I have always known that I have to be a cut above to get the same treatment. That has always been the case. That is how we have raised mm -hmm. our kids. That is, yeah. and where I am frustrated is that even, even with all the stuff that I've done, all the credentials that I have, and, and as smart as I'd like to think that I am, even, even, even with all of that, I am not getting a fair shake, or at least I don't think we're getting a fair shake. I find that pretty frustrating, right? So um, I don't know if that's the question answer you were looking for. That was amazing. Uh, that was perfect. I mean, that's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's sad to hear, but that's perfectly that's perfectly answered your question. I think yeah. um, one thing that is unfortunate, but as comedians, we we quickly learn how to do is we immediately type ourselves in the first five seconds of our of our standup so that people will receive us easily right. and. Um, right, the nuance and the, the depth will come after our hour-long special or how, what, however long we're up there. But it's almost required to fit the mold or fit the box so that someone can even receive your conversation. And I've never thought about the experience, you know, being a brown Asian Americans trying to dive into a space where it's dominantly white or black ran. And uh, I'm a black guy thinking, right, we don't have any room to speak up or something like that. And, you know, you're facing similar challenges there. Um, and so I, I think that's 
beautiful. I think our listeners want to hear other ways that people can be allies and help and grow. And I work for Axiom. So, you know, I do have benefit in it, but it's the most amazing company I've ever worked for. Um, I have been in education for a while now, and I had struggles with feeling like I was doing enough because I had too many kids and I couldn't reach them. And I wasn't teaching them how to grow as themselves. I was just teaching them how to pass this next test and then pass the next one. And at Axiom Learning, I have worked with dozens of kids and seen them grow and seen how this will exponentially improve their lives. And so the fact that y'all are struggling to get funding, but I'm aware of so many organizations that I've been a part of that get plenty of funding, that that breaks me. And, I, and I'm glad that we've had this moment so that I can figure out more ways that we can get, I don't know, it, I'm not a fundraising expert or anything, but I just want to help. <laughs> It's well, just, there's, there's no reason why that. Yeah, it's just about, we just need a fair shake. That's all we need, right? Like, that's all yeah. I really ask for. Um, you know, but it's funny, you know, you say that because there's there's a couple of things that I, I'm really proud of at Axiom, uh, Chris. So a lot of our folks tend to be pretty early in their career. And so they, you know, and sometimes, often, I'd say, we're their first job, right, out of, out of college. We hire really, really bright people, much like yourself, right, um, who are hardworking and talented and recognize that, as I often say at Axiom, Changing the world is not a nine to five gig, right? Because if it was, everybody would do it. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard. And it's supposed to be hard. And if it's, you know, if it's meaningful, there's going to be challenge to it. But what I'm especially proud of is the uh, is the number of people that come back to Axiom after leaving and saying, "Oh, I'm going to try this other thing because I think it might be better," and then coming back, running back often and saying, "I didn't realize how good we had it at Axiom." So I'm actually quite proud of that. But the other thing that I'm proud of at Axiom, I'm proud of lots of things. But one other thing, just in the context of our conversation today, is there is a belief out there, and maybe it's true in other organizations, that in order for there to be racial equity uh, or, or gender equity, right, in terms of uh, promotions or opportunity sets, that you have to put a thumb on the scale in favor of people that are underrepresented. If you look at our management team at Axiom, you'll see that it is, what, probably 80% women, uh, at least half people of color, if not more. And we never had to put a thumb on any scale. Right. All we had to say was, we are going to let this be a meritocratic process. We literally have numbers that we use to measure everybody's performance. And people have risen through the organization, not because I needed to put a thumb on the scale. I'm, I'm committed to this work if it needed to be done. It never needed to be done. All we needed to do was give people a fair shake. Right. And we've had, we've had, you know, we've had, you know, LGBTQ, we've had African American, we've had Latina, Latino, we, we have Latin, Latino, uh, we have African American. Uh, Native American, Asian Americans. Wow. Uh, what am I missing here? Right. I mean, and we, yeah. we just we haven't had to we haven't had to go out of our way, right, to take opportunity away. We just had to say we're going to be fair. You know? Wow. Um, and I think that actually answers our final question that we typically end with is, you know, what are some of the things in your space that you might not be allowed to kind of talk about and say because everyone else is going about it a totally different way. And I can kind of see that because I've seen many groups feel the requirement to really push for a specific group um, and move maybe past meritocracy in a different way. Um, And so I appreciate you sharing that because that is something that is commonly happening. Um, I will offer up the question, though. Is there any other spaces or ideas that you feel um, you you two specifically don't fit the mold in as far as? what others are doing in your space. When you say our space, do you mean education? 
Um, I, so yes, I was talking about education specifically. Yeah, the, the history here is really important, right? Because the education system was never actually built for the kids, right? So, our, so the American public education system, uh, which is largely the template for the global public education system to the extent that it exists in the United States, uh, originated with the railroad. So in the United States, in the kind of the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, what would happen is if you were 10, 12, 11, 13, 14, something like that, you and Rich would get apprenticed. Chris probably wouldn't because he was, he was, is black, right? But maybe, but even, mm-hmm. even, you know, Aisha wouldn't because she was a woman, let's say, for example, right? But in the United States, you would get apprenticed mm-hmm. to the local blacksmith or carpenter or doctor or whatever it is. But then what happened was as the railroads were being built, all of the men that would have been, because they were predominantly men, that would have been mentoring these apprentices disappeared because they was more lucrative to go build a railroad than it was to stay in town and be a, you know, let's say a carpenter or whatever. Yeah. But what ended up happening was you had all these, you know, what happens when you have, you know, 11 to 18 year old young men running around with nothing to do, right? They're, they're wow. you know, idle hands, as they say. And so, so the first schools that were built were literally to warehouse these young men to become mm. the next generation of railroad workers, right? And essentially keep them off the streets uh, from causing trouble. Um, and so the, the intention was never to give them critical thinking skills or empower them for their own future, right? So then after the railroads were built, then you know the manufacturing, the industrial revolution kind of kicked in, right? And manufacturing kicked in. And so we needed a lot of factory workers in America, right? To continue to further the economy. And so you know what ended up happening was we built these. So if you think about what a school is, right? Think about what most public schools feel like. They feel like assembly lines. That is yeah. not an accident, right? And that is because we were building our our workforce for what the economy needed, right? And, you know, so you kind of keep forward. And then at some point after World War II, the United States said, okay, we are going to give everybody a public education. We're going to give a quality public education. And the only workforce, you know, that's a lot of extra people that you're hiring immediately to be teachers. And so the reason teaching, or at least one of the reasons that teaching is predominantly women and predominantly white women and predominantly white middle-class women is because those are the folks that were available to enter that specific Bitch, right and so when you think about a lot of the values rich i mean i'm guessing that you had uh people were describing you as attention challenges when you were a kid let's say right um the reason somebody was probably saying to you success in a classroom is you sit quietly in, a, in, in your chair and you're paying attention and you're quiet right it is because those are you know kind of the traditional values that were brought from the workforce that was dominating the teaching profession at the time right and so, and then at some point we have tenure for teachers, right? And a lot of people give tenure in schools a hard time, but you have to remember the origin of tenure. The origin of tenure was, this is a very long way of answering the question, but I, I, I'm getting to the point. Um, you know, the reason it was because you used to have a, propens- uh, let's say a principal who was often male, right? And let's say he would make a pass uh, at one of his teachers. And if she resisted, then she would be punished or she would be fired or something like that, right? And so the original reason that, that teachers get tenure so quick was because there were a lot of injustices that were being addressed by tenure, that you can no longer hold my job over me as a way to oppress me or to demean me or to mm. assault me, right? Um, and so, so the system that we have today is layer upon layer upon layer of historical accident, right? And, uh, and the system primarily, and it's nobody's fault really, right? But um, the system is de- is is designed for efficiency mm-hmm. and is designed for scale, 
that is not the same thing as saying that it's designed for each individual learner to maximize their success, right? And often those two things run counter to each other. One of our, our, our advisory board members is a, is a Harvard economist. And he said to me at one point something I thought was really profound, uh, which is that I can often tell you the outcome of a system without knowing anything else other than the incentive structures you put into the system, right? Wow. So in other words, whatever you incentivize people to do, they're going to do, and they're going to do more of it because you incentivize them to do it, right? And so, so, you know, this is a really long way of getting back to the point that Aisha made, again, almost in passing, which is that one of the things that I think is almost unique, it's not entirely unique, but that we are data-driven, right? And actually, we built these tools, and the tools that we know work don't work because I really, really want them to work, or I really mm. believe they work. They work because we just followed the data wherever it went, right? And that sounds like a really simple thing, but you would be shocked, shocked at how much of our education system had no little data behind it or little to no data at all, right? It was just done because that's how yeah. it's been, right? And so, you know, and so when you think about, you know, you think about kind of what the next generation of education will look like versus what it should look like, I would say, let's go back to the incentive structures, right? Because, and a lot of our incentive structures are built around standardized testing, right? So standardized mm -hmm. testing, what is testing? Testing is, I am talking way too much. I'm sorry, guys, but I have no, so I much. I love it. I'm on my, I'm on my horse here That's and I'm right. So uh, the standardized test, you know, when we hold people accountable, schools, teachers, classrooms, districts, kids, when we hold people accountable to standardized tests, right? What we're really saying is the questions on these tests are what we are creating as your incentive, right? In other words, I want you to be able to do this kind of question, right? And so I therefore oh, okay. an entire system to get good at getting kids to be able to answer this very specific type of question, right? Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So the problem with testing is not that testing in and of itself is a bad idea. If you think of testing as an incentive structure, it could be good or it could be bad. It happens to be bad because we have built these tests to be super efficient, right? I got to be able to do something I can do multiple choice so I can stick it on a Scantron and a computer can do all the scoring for me, right? But if I did the, if I created tests to say, what are the skills that these kids will need to be successful in the next generation, the economy to come? And I rebuilt those tests to encourage working with other people, public speaking skills, you know, actual critical problem solving where maybe there's not one answer, but there are multiple answers. Or if there is one answer, there are multiple pathways to that answer, right? All these things. How to drive? Know. How to drive Uber? I mean, that's the next. You know. You know what I mean? Like Singapore, for example, does this, right? Part of Singapore's testing regime is that you, as a student, have you know they give you a topic, you have to put together a, a presentation, and you actually have to deliver it. And they've invested a lot in the testing regime, right? Like it's really expensive to do it that way, but they do it because they know that their future in Singapore, in part because it's a city state, right? And so they have to be a services driven industry, but a company economy, but but they have said our people are everything, right? Where our people go determines where our economy will go. You know what I mean? Wow. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we are <laughs> long answer, right? Part of what we are trying to do at Axiom is to say, let us help you figure out what are we incentivizing you towards, and then how do we measure whether or not we're getting you in that direction. Does that make does that make sense? Yeah. That was amazing. Absolutely. It's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Wow, what a way to end it. I mean that that was beautiful. Um we just are so thankful. Our I know our listeners are really happy to hear this perspective. 
one, because we all have kids or we've all been through the education system. And so that has been amazing to hear about. We've also touched on love and communication. So we kind of hit a lot of topics today. Um, but I, I just think as Imperfect Allies, we're all trying to learn and grow. And so we're so thankful, Aisha, Shahzad. We're thankful that y'all came on this show for us because one, I'm just a, a random employee, but y'all y'all showed me love and I wanted to um, let the world know how amazing Axiom Learning is. Um, Rich, any anything else you got to say? Shahzad, what you got? Well, I was going to say, Chris, you're being far too humble. You are exceptional. Uh, and we, 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 it's been an honor and a privilege to get to know you as we have uh, and to get a chance to work with you. And so we're, we're looking forward to seeing what the future holds. Uh, and, and Rich, we, thank we, we very much enjoy getting to know you as well. Oh, I'm great. So I um, thank you very much for acknowledging that. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, I'm just kidding. Oh, man. That didn't land at all. Everybody's quiet. <laughs> Everybody's just looking at me like I'm crazy. That's okay. That's okay. No, no sincerely, thank you. Thank you very much for, for doing the show and talking. We'd love to talk to you all again. I mean, this is uh, in this attempt to act smart on these complex issues. When you meet smart people, it's crazy how dumb you feel. Like, I just, <laughs> uh, I was humbled by not only their generosity and care but the intellect and, and eloquence in which they just, uh, Shazad just schooled me. And it was just fantastic and wonderful. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Oh, hey, Shazad, no, no, this is good. Shazad's still here. Go ahead. Go, what you got? Go ahead, man. This is great. You guys are, you, I mean, it's a power couple. You are <laughs> remarkably authentic in your vulnerability. That's quite rare. Right, and you should be you should be proud of that. I I do have that going for me. I I, I will make mistakes readily in front of people, and I, I've already done that tonight. So thank y'all for your kindness with me. <laughs> and to that point, for our listeners, um, at the very beginning of this show, we had a very vulnerable conversation, and Shazad said he disagreed with a lot of the uh, worldview of monolithic white and black culture that we actually talk about a lot on this podcast. And it was a great humbling experience that I wish we had going live. I apologize for that, guys. But yeah, it, jump in the next one. Just jump in. Just yeah, we will. And if if you are a Patreon subscriber and you were checking this out, you were able to get a little bit of that. But the big thing here is we are trying to be very vulnerable here at Imperfect Allies, and we want us to make mistakes here for everyone to see because maybe mm. you can learn from that. Maybe you can. Um, work on your worldview, get a different perspective. And that's what imperfect allies is all about. As many people say, there's a perfect way to do it. There's not, right? We're, we're going to be messing up and learning. <laughs> and one thing that Aisha has instilled in me, because Axiom has instilled it as one of their credos is, if we could do better, we would do better. So absolutely, yeah. it, it just takes time, takes us time for us to learn it. But we loved y'all so much. Um, please... Mm -hmm come back anytime uh we're gonna wrap up the show thank y'all everyone we finish out every time with a peace peace, peace out peace wow so that was our amazing episode um mm. we thankful for everyone listening in please if there was a moment that caught you drop the timestamp, comment subscribe also five stars rate us we love that you can find us on allies imperfect on twitter instagram facebook please join our patreon mm. group as we're growing we uh, see y'all increasing our numbers. We appreciate that because y'all want to have this great discussion as well. 
Richie, what you got? I mean, you covered it all, buddy. You got it all. You nailed it. Perfect. So great. No, it was such a such a great show. Um, super happy to talk to them. And uh, uh, you know, you know, Chris, up at the top okay, of the show. Up, yeah. So up at the top of the show, uh, we didn't get to record it, but when we were speaking to Shazad, Shazad uh, he he was really challenging us um, and asking us what this show is, like trying to get us to give the elevator pitch or whatever else. Um, and we didn't, we neither one of us gave particularly good answers. Um, and what kind of came across to me at first, my first reaction was, well, I just need to quit. Like, I need to quit. I'm an idiot. I'm a stupid idiot. And this guy is obviously smarter than me. And he is smarter than me, uh, but um, it doesn't mean that I don't have a place at the table. Like that's what, as I, I was, as we were talking, you know, through the show, like I have a place at this table and my place is being authentic. Okay, cool. I'm an idiot. I can be, you know, <laughs> a goofy, a goofy guy and still have a place at the table. I, I, I shouldn't say idiot, but um, I don't know. That was the first thing that struck me, man. What about you? I was blown away with how, directly uh, like he spoke instantly to a problem in our production right mm -hmm. we have a podcast that's supposed to have an audience it's supposed to be clear we sp we need to know these things to grow and as a businessman because he owns multiple businesses his first question was what is this podcast and tell me like why why would i even care to listen to it and we gave our pitches and he was like, those are horrible. <laughs> and, and he wasn't wrong. We don't have a clear understanding of what we're doing because we're two random comedians who are just talking about yeah. stuff we're experiencing. Yeah. But I think what, what was really beautiful that came out of it is this might be one of the few places where you're allowed to make mistakes because mm. we brought it back to Shazad saying, because his immediate response was, he really disagrees with, one, the fact that we're trying to talk to everyone too broad for a business model. Mm -hmm. Two, the idea that there's a monolithic white culture, monolithic black culture. He doesn't mm. subscribe to that. It's more about the individual and what they can control, which mm. we have gotten that feedback before and we 100% mm. agree on. Mm. But what he wasn't expecting was us to say part of our show is us getting that wrong every day and being able to model and be vulnerable. Mm. And I think by the end of the podcast, and our listeners, you tell me it's over now. We walked away knowing this podcast is about being vulnerable, about uncomfortable allyship, and how we make those mistakes every day. And Richie, you made a stereotype guess about Aisha that was wrong for her, yeah, yeah. but right for Shazad. <laughs> right, right, so, right. And it, it was an attempt at uh, pointing out that we all laughed at the joke. But it felt like I very much inadvertently offended her. So it was like one of those things that's like, do I bring this up and say, I missed, I misstepped there. I was trying to point out, we all know about the stereotype. And that's the kind of things that we talk about on the show. Um, because we all laughed at that, the idea of the, you know, uh, overbearing parents. Anyway, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's it. Uh, they're very gracious, and she was particularly very gracious for, to me to not to not be mean to me or whatever or whatever else. But I could I could see on her face that I didn't confront it. I maybe I should have. I don't I don't know how to though. Honestly, I don't know how to do it. So, um, yeah. And I think 
the, the, the what's important for us, you and I, and for our listeners mm-hmm. is the way you handle your mistake will vary depending on the circumstance and relationship. Mm-hmm. I really believe one, since you've never met Aisha before, mm-hmm. and we are on a podcast about making those mistakes as we discussed up front. Mm-hmm. I think she corrected you only to point out how that stereotype is it's misplaced and correctly placed at the same mm-hmm. time. It, it is because she laughed at it because she understands that is a trope. That is a consistent thing that mm-hmm. we understand. But at the same mm-hmm. time, she didn't experience that from her parents. Her parents were very open to her finding right. her own self. And it's crazy how that brings us back every time to individualism and how many of us experience totally different realities of our behaviors around these tropes. I mm-hmm. I have so many tropes that I don't fit in, but I understand them so much that I can laugh at them. Mm-hmm. But they don't fit me at all. It's not technically authentic to me. Yeah. I can just laugh because I get the joke that America has, we all learned this joke mm-hmm. of the different racial groups and the different stereotypes. So I think you handled it fine by kind of reiterating, but mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't take that personal. That's just, that's part of it. No, I, mean, I didn't, uh, I didn't take it personal. I mean, like I said, it was, it was my, mis- my misstep, whether for whatever reason and me trying to like, sort of explain what I was doing, you know, I don't know that that was the best way to handle it. Um, but I'm glad that she did, you know, say, Hey, no, you know, my mom and dad didn't, they didn't push me like that. Uh, and it, and it was cool to see the Shazad said, and mine did, you know, that stereotype, that stereotype that, you know, uh, holds up. Um, one of the things that really struck me though, and we didn't get to, there's so many things we talked about and we do this on the show with these, with these conversational shows, it's just like this. So folks, please stick with it. <laughs> but one of the things was about Shazad's dad who came, you know, the story was, you know, came here, didn't have any place to stay, found somebody and slept on a, on a hospital bed. That's like the immigrant individualist story came here and did it. You know, successful now. His son went to his son went to Harvard. His his Harvard lawyer son married a doctor. Like <laughs> they are, you know, they own businesses. They, you know, family for twenty years. They have, you know, so every every like uh, check mark of quote unquote, you know, of success, what we consider success. But in the American dream, exactly, absolutely. So there's there's one piece of that. But the other piece of that that struck me was. Um, who was that guy that gave him the bed and how many of those beds have we that are quote unquote individually successful? How many of those have we been given over and over again? Right. How many of those? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, you know, Shazad seemed to think that those two things, collectivism and, and individualism could, could coexist. Um, mm-hmm. You know? And, and so I, I, I don't know. I just, I just found that really, really sort of profound that, we don't talk about the people that helped us along the way. The story is, is, you know, I had 70 cents in my pocket. I now own, you know, this business and I made a million, I'm a millionaire now kind of is the story that you hear. And, and really it's about, it's, it's that. And it's also knowing I got one friend, I have one friend and they have a bed that I can sleep in tonight, you know, cause I think that that's missing from that individualism. That's it's a missing from that American story. Yeah, I hear that. And I I'm I really fell in love with now obviously listeners, you know, 
some people have animosity towards other religious groups, which is mm -hmm. strange to me in a country yeah. where Amer religious freedom is what we uh, focus on. Mm -hmm. But Shazad also connecting the um, religion of Muslim and the presence of like kind of you, you have your self-determination, but your presence of the ecosystem and the people around you. And, and mm -hmm. I can imagine that his father and the one person that he knew who had the hospital bed, I could imagine that that person was presently aware that they have this opportunity yeah. to help someone else. Mm -hmm. And that part of the American story, like you said, is missing. And where can we find those fabrics? Like, is it in mm -hmm. their religious beliefs? And maybe we're not building that up enough in the Christianity belief or, mm -hmm. you know, if you're agnostic, how do we supplement that? allyship because that's mm -hmm. what that person was yeah right they were an ally who said all i have is one hospital bed mm -hmm. it's like i'll take it mm -hmm. you know I, I have a dream and <laughs> we need that you can be the person who just has a hospital bed how many of us might have room on our floor but we're like nah <laughs> yeah sorry yeah it's my space yeah it's it's true and, and i mean i think it's also important to and we didn't get the chance to talk about it and i would like to you know maybe in another episode but the the foundational the 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 foundation of their faith right if you were to exchange um the word christian with you know muslim in what they say a lot of the, what they said there is no difference between the messages that we grew up with and the messages they're talking about and mm -hmm. i think specifically in in the u.s with with muslims there has been a of course there's been a vilification of that religion and really what they demonstrated was was i would say typical for all muslims is is that like you know like look this this the way that i read the quran it it reads back like you know uh, aisha was talking about like it's always something there that's how we talk about our scriptures the way that um you know uh, our faith leads us to hospitality our faith leads us to to do these nonprofits um and 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 make want to change the world make things more excellent uh, than we found them kind of thing. Like we would say that about our Christian faith as well. And, and so, or at least I've heard those messages. And, and I, I think it's so important to see how not different we are in that aspect because it's been such, so vilified, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so vilified when, you know, we had uh, Sadia on, you know, he's a, he's a queer Muslim that was, uh, he raised Muslim and, and queer, and, and he was relatively accepted by most of the people in his life, right? <laughs> that were practicing. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it's just who it's just who they are. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just I think that there that's that's really needed as well, and and I hope that we can I hope that we can get more folks on the show to talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think they were amazing guests. Mm -hmm. I hope so many people took. There was so much depth and information and. Obviously, when you have really educated people in the room, you just start feeling like you're learning something because mm -hmm. I was learning left and right. So, I mean, we could have this wrap up be go on for days because you have mm -hmm. the stuff talks about education, the talks about relationships, the talks about religion, the mm -hmm. talks about individualism, the talks about culture. It was so deep. And so if you want to continue talking, please join us over on Allies Imperfect mm -hmm. and our social media please come over and join us on our Patreon. Or if you don't have time for that, drop a comment right now. That's all you got to do to start the conversation and keeping it going. 
Um, we're just so thankful for you allies mm. every single day. We love this and we just want to keep talking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Peace. Peace.